Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey. Aaron Baldessari here. Today on Sold Out, we've got something special for y'all. A surprise episode from our friends at WWNO and WRKF in Louisiana. It's part of their podcast, Sea Change, all about how climate change is affecting life along the Gulf Coast. And if you like Sold Out, we think you'll like this podcast too. It covers a lot of the same stories and struggles that folks in California or any community on the front lines of climate change are facing. This episode is all about what it means to be resilient in an era of climate change. Stay tuned to hear what Sea Change listeners think about that word, resilient, and about how people are making their homes and communities stronger. If you want to hear more, you can find Sea Change in your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Carolyn Broussard. I'm from New Iberia originally. I live in New Orleans now. And... I have grown up my whole life being called resilient from all this stuff that we've gone through. And I swear, if I get called resilient one more time, I'm going to scream. You're listening to Sea Change. I'm Hallie Parker, and today we're talking about the word resilient. It's one we hear all the time living on the coast. And New Orleans Public Radio's Carly Berlin has been thinking a lot about how we use it. Hey, Carly. Hey, Hallie. So when it comes to climate change, this word gets tossed around a lot, right? Yeah, we use it to talk about everything from our houses to the power grid to ourselves. I don't think I could even begin to count the number of times I've heard this word while reporting in South Louisiana over the last few years. And I started wondering how people felt about it. And when we asked, you blew up our voicemail box. Yeah, so this seems to have really hit a nerve. So when did you start getting curious about all this? I started really thinking about this word during the two record-breaking hurricane seasons we had in 2020 and 2021. As you know, Hallie, we lived through this ourselves. The state was hammered by seven named storms over the course of those two years, and they caused massive destruction. The terrifying sounds of Ida. Pieces of the roof flying everywhere. As one of the strongest storms to ever hit the area. So I started noticing this thing. I was so often in the moments after people had just lost everything, you'd hear this phrase. Every American heart is with the people of Texas and Louisiana. They're strong and resilient. The people of Louisiana and, and Mississippi are resilient. What I always say about our folks here in Louisiana is we're very tough, resilient people. The go-to for government officials. I feel like it's almost a post-hurricane catchphrase at this point. Yeah, and a lot of people don't love getting called resilient. Like Carolyn, our caller you heard at the top of the episode. If I get called resilient one more time, I'm going to scream. For some of you, the word resilient is used as a way to pass the buck. That's what Rosina down in Plaquemines Parish told us. Hi, my name is Rosina Philippe. I am a Takapayashakshuwasha from the Grand Bayou Village. You know, people are saying, oh, well, they're resilient. And it kind of relieves them of, you know, the responsibility to do the critical and the aggressive things that are needed. This idea came up a lot in your voicemails. That calling individual people resilient actually relieves responsibility from those in power to protect them from harm. And I think it's fair to say Hurricane Katrina was the worst case scenario of this dynamic. 
because it wasn't really a natural disaster. The flooding of New Orleans and all the deaths that followed were the result of human failures, human lapses of responsibility. And that's what our caller Claudia said. Hi, my name is Claudia Barker, and I'm calling from New Orleans. Those of us who survived and rebuilt post-Katrina got very tired of being called resilient. Some disasters, like the flooding of New Orleans in the wake of Katrina, are in part due to poor choices on the part of humans. With Katrina, it was the federal government's choice not to maintain its flood protection system and the national leader's failure to help people, especially black people, when they were in dire straits. The thing I started thinking about listening to all these messages is when people get called resilient, what they actually hear is, hey, sorry, you're on your own. If your house got destroyed, you can rebuild it yourself. If you've been displaced, you can get back home yourself. It's almost like people are saying, hey, don't call me resilient without actually doing anything to help me be resilient. Yes, exactly. Okay. So it seems like the question is, what can our governments, our social systems, the private companies we buy things from actually do to keep people from having to be resilient in the first place? Totally. I wanted to get into the meat of that question. And to do that, I got to a sort of unlikely place. Well, I'll tell you what, there really was an octopus in the parking garage. That's Rob Burchick. He's a professor of environmental law at Loyola University, New Orleans. He also used to work in the Obama administration. And he just came out with this book called The Octopus in the Parking Garage. It starts off with this story about a guy in Miami in 2016. He was heading into his condo building's parking garage. And lapping around his car and all the other cars there was this large, broad pool of greenish uh, seawater and flopping around right in the middle of it underneath the fluorescent lights was a very large live octopus. This guy, he took a picture on his phone and posted it online. It went viral. But to Rob, this was more than just a funny story. It was a climate change issue. The octopus had probably been hanging out at the bottom of Biscayne Bay near a drainage pipe, but because of sea level rise and an extreme tide that day. The waters reversed and pushed him all the way up into the parking garage and splattered out. And this raised a kind of existential question for Rob. How do we live with climate change when the wall we've built between ourselves and nature starts to collapse? If we can't keep sea life out of parking garages, what else can't we do? Or really, what else can we do? That's actually the central question of Rob's book, which is all about this idea of resilience in the face of our rapidly changing world. He has this line that's really stuck with me. Climate action now seeks to avoid the harm we can't manage and to manage the harm we can't avoid. Managing the harm we can't avoid That's the resilience part. The first use of the word resilience back, I think it was Francis Bacon who used the word to to mean bounce back. The word resilience comes up in a lot of different disciplines. In ecology, resilience is used to describe the ability of an ecosystem to bounce back to normal after some kind of disturbance. It's used in psychology, too, to talk about emotional resilience to trauma. And that doesn't mean, oh, you go through a traumatic event and you plow through it and just come out the other end alive. That's not what resilience is. Resilience is being able to go through the process of understanding what is happening, changing maybe your reactions to it or your vulnerability to it, and then whatever the event is, coming out in a stronger way, better equipped to deal with the world. And that's how Rob thinks about climate resilience. It's identifying the problems in front of us, adapting to them, managing them in some way, and coming out the other side better positioned to face the next chapter of this bigger crisis as it unfolds. When I say climate resilience, we're talking about bouncing back, you know, absorbing a charge, if you will, but we have to bounce back better. We have to find the problems that we had to begin with 
and fix them. And Hallie, fixing those problems is a big task. On the one hand, it means addressing the physical threats, like keeping the octopus out of the parking garage or adjusting where and how we live because of the risks of rising seas and bigger storms. And on the other hand, if that's not enough, there's addressing the social side. There are so many levers that lead to poverty and inequality in this country. And we've seen over and over again, it's harder for poor folks to get back on their feet after a disaster strikes. So our episode today comes in two acts. Act one, how can we address those physical forces of climate change? And act two, how do we begin to mend the broken social systems that make it an even greater threat? First up, Carly takes us on a journey to coastal Alabama where we're gonna talk about the roof over your head. Every couple months in Alabama, hundreds of people get up in the middle of the night to get on this website, not to score Beyonce or Taylor Swift tickets, but to try to win a new roof. Bernadette Wendell's one of these people. She lives in the suburbs of Mobile, down near the coast, and she took her chance back in April. Well, it's 12.06 in the morning, and I am trying to log on to Strengthen Alabama Homes to a for the grant. This grant is from a state program called Strengthen Alabama Homes. It gives people money, up to $10,000 each, to help them make their houses better able to withstand severe weather. Some of the money's for things like stronger windows and garage doors, but mostly it's for stronger roofs. Because the worst damage from a storm usually comes after the roof's blown off, exposing the inside of a house to the outside. The state gives this money out on a first-come, first-served basis, a few hundred homes at a time. And when the website opens up just four times a year at midnight, the slots have been filled in as little as eight minutes. And when Bernadette logged on, the site totally froze. She'd been through this before. Just like the first time I tried to do it, it seems that the site is locked up. It is not letting me log on at all. I'm going to try for just a few minutes, but as of right now, it's not opening the site whatsoever. If you're someone who knows about this stuff, Alabama has come to be a national leader in the world of resilient construction, a way of building homes so they can stay intact through hurricanes or tornadoes. And the Strength in Alabama Homes program plays a key role. I wanted to see it in action. So from my home in New Orleans, I get on Interstate 10 and head east. The highway cuts right through neighborhoods. And as I drive, I see roof after roof covered in blue tarps. And another one that's five within two minutes. And it's hard to know which storm these are from because we've had so many come through here over the last few years. When news crews fly over places devastated by hurricanes, you always see rows and rows of destroyed roofs. Wood and shingles and people's possessions scattered everywhere. That's because the types of storms we've seen on the Gulf Coast over the last couple years, their punch has come in their ferocious winds. Winds that reach up to 150 miles per hour and rip roofs off of houses, opening them up to the sky. Once the storms pass, the first thing people do is put a tarp on the roof. And these tarps, they don't exactly hold up well if more bad weather comes. Some of these tarps are frayed and blowing around from probably getting battered by other storms that have come through since they got put on. And I've always wondered, can't we construct our homes in a way that makes them less likely to blow apart in the wind? That is Alabama's wager. What if instead of fixing roofs after a storm comes, we built them better in the first place? So I drive into Loxley, Alabama, a small town about 10 miles east of Mobile Bay, to see one of these special roofs get put on. I wind down a rural road lined with farms and churches, 
And then I pull up at this little brick ranch house that's got a cross on the door that says welcome with a sunflower on it. The roof work is well underway. Hey, Carly. Harry Crump. Harry Crump is the contractor here today. He specializes in construction that's better able to take the hit of a hurricane. The crew here is ripping off shingles and an old layer of felt, tossing them into a pile in the yard. This is called the tear-off. Pretty straightforward. But once the old roof is torn off, then comes the first step in putting the new roof on. Harry and his crew need to secure the roof decking layer, plywood basically, to the house's rafters. And to do that, they're going to use these special nails that look kind of like screws. And a lot of them, seven to eight hundred. You have to re-nail every rafter with eight D ring shank nails four inches apart. That secures the plywood to the rafters. And how are those nails different than like... A standard, a standard 8D common is smooth shank. They, you can pull those out pretty easily. Well, a ring shank nail, is a, it locks itself in the wood because it's got rings around it. So, again, works kind of like a screw. Once those are all in, the crew puts on a special protective layer called an ice and water shield, which will help keep the rain out. If you blow a few shingles off, you still have the ice and water shield, which will protect it from the rain. So pretty simple. You've got your special nails keeping your roof attached to the house. You've got your ice and water shield keeping the roof sealed from rain. Then you make sure the edges are super secure. Those are the spots where the pressure from the wind tends to lift the roof off. You slap on some heavy-duty shingles and you're good to go. Part of the point of Strength in Alabama, it encourages people to replace their old roofs with new, hardier ones, with these materials that will actually withstand a storm. And for some people, it helps them fix roof damage they wouldn't have been able to pay for otherwise. Like for Karen Ellis, whose family owns this little brick ranch house. She's one of the lucky Strength in Alabama winners. She shows me her big backyard with tall, shady trees. It's a really beautiful spot back here with all the trees. Yeah, the yeah, flowers. it is. Yeah. You know, thing, you're not just be worrying about his snakes, but yeah. other than that, it's good. It is good. Karen grew up in this house with the tall trees and the rose bushes and the snakes in the grass. Her family built this place out of a catalog in the 60s. She moved back in a few years ago to take care of her mom, who has Alzheimer's. And when Hurricane Sally blew through here in 2020, it ripped a hole in the roof. Water started leaking into the kitchen and Karen's bedroom. She knew then that they were going to need to get the roof replaced. So she put one of those ubiquitous blue tarps over the roof. But it didn't last. It was a blue up there, but the blue wasn't strong enough. It blew away, and so my brother went and brought another one, a bigger one. And it took, the tarp took care of it until, uh, you know, to now. That second tarp sat on their roof for two and a half years, until the roofing crew showed up this morning and peeled it off. Karen found out about Strength in Alabama through a friend. She said the process went pretty smoothly. And without the grant, her family wouldn't have been able to pay for this new roof. The $10,000 from the program will cover almost the entire cost. As she watches the crew nail the decking down and roll out the ice and water shield, she says she feels protected going into hurricane season this time around. Because I don't have to worry about the rain anymore and the rain in the house. Uh, just, just excited. And the newness of it is make the house look better. Even though we need more work done to it, but the roof is the start. Her peace of mind, it's not the only benefit here. The real reason Strength in Alabama Homes exists? It's a Hail Mary to save the coastal insurance industry. Let's turn the clock back a minute to the mid-2000s. Alabama had just been hit by a series of big storms. Hurricane Ivan in 2004, the eastern edge of Katrina in 2005. And that meant a lot of damage to homes near the coast in a really short period of time. And that meant a lot of payouts from insurance companies to homeowners to help people rebuild. And the insurance industry on the coast, it started to falter after seeing all those claims pile up. 
companies were seeing their profit margins evaporate. Climate change poses a huge existential threat for the insurance industry everywhere. That's because insurance companies, their job is to put a price tag on risk. And when they look into their crystal balls into the future, they see the mounting risks from climate change. More destruction from storms, more profit lost. In coastal Alabama in the mid-2000s, this meant insurance companies started raising their prices, reflecting that higher future risk. Some companies stopped renewing policies, limiting people's options. And insurance premiums started getting way more expensive. Faced with that bigger price tag, some people dropped their wind insurance altogether, leaving them even more vulnerable if a storm hit. All of this was a big problem, especially for one man. Yeah, I'm Brian Powell with the Alabama Department of Insurance. Brian's job at the time had been to try and rehabilitate insurance companies that had gone insolvent. But then he got tapped to do something else, find a way to reduce the risk of loss in the first place before companies got stressed and homeowners got screwed. I call him up one day to hear the story, and he said he had one place to start, with the homes themselves. The way to do that is to put in place some mechanisms so that the homes are kept intact as these storms come through. How do you do that? Well, we had to figure it out. Brian is pragmatic. Former military, used to work at a law firm dealing with insurance fraud. By the time he was tasked with figuring out how to reduce this risk of loss, the stakes were even higher. The state had been hit by a massive tornado outbreak in 2011, another big blow to the insurance industry. So Brian focused, shut himself in his office up in Montgomery for two years. He knew he needed to figure out some kind of way to modify buildings, some kind of construction standard that could stand up better to high winds. So we started searching everywhere. I scoured the country looking for a standard because, you know, to me, without establishing a standard for a program that we had nothing to measure our work by. And he found this organization called the Insurance Institute for Building and Home Safety. It's a research group funded by insurance companies. And its mandate is to find ways to drive down the risk of property loss or the risk of buildings getting damaged or destroyed by severe weather. To do that, the group built this huge research facility in South Carolina where they basically recreate climate disasters. Picture an airplane hangar with 105 gigantic fans. They can simulate hurricanes and other kinds of storms in there and test a house's ability to hold up to them. I had never heard of anything like this, so I went and found this video from inside the research center. This is what all those fans sound like. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's Fred Malik. It's large enough for us to build full-size single-family homes in there and create Category 3 hurricanes, 8 inches of rain an hour. Fred is the managing director of a program at the research group called Fortified. All caps like you're yelling it. They've created all kinds of construction guidelines for building houses that are better able to withstand storms, called the Fortified Standards. In the video from the test facility, it starts out with two identical houses side by side. One is quote-unquote fortified, the other isn't. And once the fans turn on... You can watch as the normal house blows to pieces, with chunks of wood flying everywhere. But the fortified house, it's totally fine. The highest fortified level, the gold standard, protects houses from Category 3 hurricanes. That level's usually for just new houses. It involves things like making sure your roof is anchored to your walls and your walls to your foundation in an extra hardy way. But the lowest level starts with reinforcing just one part of the house. Fred said that's because, through the group's research, they found that the worst destruction— and most insurance claims, usually start at just one spot. You already know what it is. The damage almost always starts with the roof. Most claims have roof damage, and once the roof damage starts, then the claim just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So they came up with those building practices you heard about from our contractor, Harry Crump. The ring shank nails that look like screws, that special seal for extra protection from the rain. 
along with other things you can do beyond the roof, like putting in stronger windows and doors and garages, all the other openings where wind and water can get in. Brian, who'd been holed up in his office looking for a standard, he went out to the airplane hangar test facility in Richburg, South Carolina. And there, he found the answer to his problem. After I saw the science, I saw what they were doing uh, in Richburg. I was sold. So I came back to Alabama and talked with the commissioner of insurance and just explained what they were doing. The fortified standards became the centerpiece of this new program Brian designed, Strengthen Alabama Homes. We already know it gives homeowners up to $10,000 to fortify their homes and lessen their risk. But it's also a win for the insurance companies. Because houses that are built to withstand severe weather mean fewer post-storm payouts. And here's how you know the insurance industry really thinks it's worth it. They're footing the bill. The companies are the ones funding Strength in Alabama Homes in the first place through things like licensing fees that they have to pay to the state of Alabama in order to do business there. The industry is really paying for this, but they're also reaping some of the benefits in that they are paying for a reduction of loss. And by Brian's account, it's worked. It took a while to start doling out grants, government bureaucracy for you, but since it officially launched in 2016, the program's funded over 6,000 homes. But that's actually a small fraction of the total number of fortified homes in Alabama. There are now over 40,000 out of 50,000 across the whole country, which means Alabama's really leading the way. That's partly because some places in coastal Alabama have baked the fortified standards into their municipal building codes. So when new houses go up, they're all fortified. There's also an added bonus for people already in their home, the icing on the cake, really. Once the fortified work is done, they get a discount on their insurance premium. So while other states have some tax breaks or more modest incentives or their own hurricane building codes like Florida, no other state has really embraced fortified building like Alabama has. Brian sees the Strength in Alabama program as a kind of catalyst. Even beyond the homes it funds directly, it's a way of spreading the word that these standards work. Because the goal of Strength in Alabama, overall, it's to lower insurance rates by strengthening as many homes as possible across the state, lowering the risk for everyone at once. And Brian says the insurance market on the coast has rebounded. The market is becoming very healthy down there, so it's, it's been a, a, an overwhelming success. Such a success that other states are looking to follow Alabama's lead, including Louisiana, which will be a tall task. Louisiana's insurance market is in free fall after all the storms we've faced here in the last few years. We've got a much larger coast than Alabama, and most of our big population centers are close to it. It feels like every week another insurance company goes broke or stops writing policies here. And Alabama's program isn't perfect. It's limited to just single-family homes where the owner lives on site, which means people who rent don't see the same benefits. And Brian told me the demand is so high that there's never enough money to go around for everyone. And because it's first come, first served, sometimes the people most in need can end up last in line. There's no way to prioritize people who are waiting with tarps over their roofs for years. That's been the main thing that bothers William Marker. He was a roofer working on Karen Ellis's house. He pointed across the street and told me he's suspicious that the people who could use the money most might have trouble getting it. The people that actually need the program, they still have blue tarps on their roof because they may not be able to wake up at 12 o'clock and get on the computer and apply for it. They may not have internet access. We're standing across the street from my house right now. That would probably qualify for it. It has a tarp on their roof. But um, unfortunately, they may not be able to actually apply for the grant. Karen Ellis's family got lucky. They needed the money. They wouldn't have gotten a new roof without it. For Bernadette Wendell, it was more of a choice. She's the one logging onto the Strength in Alabama Homes website at midnight. She gave up for a while, then tried again at 1 a.m. And then I finally was able to link in, but it took, um, it took till 3.30 in the morning to get it to go through. But she got it. And the new roof is in the works. Bernadette had already been planning to get the roof of her suburban house replaced. She works for a real estate agency. And it was from them that she learned about Strength in Alabama Homes, 
she saw the program as a way to help cut the cost of replacing her old roof. And that's when I told my husband, I'm like, we probably ought to consider this now. They hadn't faced damage like Karen Ellis had during Sally. And getting a fortified roof wasn't really on her radar. But now she feels a little bit calmer going into hurricane season, knowing her family will have a stronger roof over their heads. We're not one to up and leave with a hurricane. We don't live in a flood zone, so we're not we do live on a lake. But <laughs> but, you you know, to give you a more secure feeling in a house when a storm's coming through is nice. That sense of security and only stretches so far. The streets could flood with extreme rain. The power could still go out. But if a storm comes and your roof stays over your head, you'll have a lot less work to do, picking up the pieces afterward. If you evacuated, maybe you'll get to return home faster. Help out your neighbors sooner. And maybe that's one way to think about resilience, getting to return to some sense of normalcy with a little more ease. Okay, so Carly, we've been talking all about the physical side of resilience, right? Building things in a way that saves us from the cycle of destruction, rebuild, repeat. But that's not the only factor at play. Right, Hallie. I want to take us back to my conversation with Rob Verchik, the octopus guy. To him, the risks associated with climate change have two distinct drivers. One driver is the physical exposure to physical harm. Okay, maybe that's being in the hurricane belt. So you can tackle that first driver of risk, the physical exposure, with physical solutions. Things like Alabama's roofing program. But then you get to the other driver. The other is the social vulnerability attached to it. Think of social vulnerability as how susceptible a certain group of people is to the worst impacts of a disaster, like injuries, deaths, disruption to everyday life. Take a hurricane, for example. The same storm can hit a community that's wealthy and one that's poor. The wealthy community's ability to recover relatively quickly is going to be a lot greater than the poor ones. And to Rob, this social vulnerability is actually what sets us apart here in South Louisiana from the rest of the country, even more than our susceptibility to hurricanes or floods. We in southern Louisiana are more different from the rest of the country in the degree of social vulnerability than we are in the degree of physical exposure. So he's saying, yeah, we're in the path of storms, but the real problem is how unequal our society is, which I hadn't really thought about in those terms before. Yeah, I've read studies that back him up, actually. You need more than just better roofs and better engineering. You need to undo centuries of inequality. Right, because in Louisiana, we're at the bottom of every list. We have some of the lowest life expectancies, some of the largest shares of people living in poverty, and deeply entrenched systemic racism. And to Rob, who literally wrote the book on climate resilience, achieving resilience, it needs to look like addressing all of that. If you could have a handle on fixing parts of social vulnerability, you would actually be doing more to reduce risk than building a seawall. This makes me think about all those voicemails we got. The pushback against the word resilience is people being like, hey, I've had to be resilient because these systems are broken, because the safety net is so frayed here. Exactly. And you need a whole different set of tools to try and build a stronger safety net. So for Act 2, I want to show you a group that's trying to do just that. I'm in a parking lot in Gentilly, a majority black neighborhood in New Orleans, on a summer day last year. There are about a dozen of us here, debating what kind of cold drink we'll need for a hot morning of door knocking. Water, water. Stay on that PDA light, man. How often do you drink this? These folks aren't coming around trying to sell you something or getting you to vote for somebody. Their job? It's to help you get ready for hurricane season. They're part of a nonprofit called the Resilience Corps. It's a dedicated group that helps with disaster prep and response. Tanya Freeman Brown is one of the supervisors out here today. 
She says they're talking with people about how to make an evacuation plan or what to stockpile if you're going to wait a storm out. If we could really become accustomed to planning versus reacting, it'll reduce a lot of the stress in an already stressful situation. And the way to reduce stress is to have the information ahead of the crisis, knowing how to get help from the city in advance. Because the biggest threat usually comes after a hurricane hits, especially if the power is knocked out. Like what happened here after Hurricane Ida in 2021, when New Orleans faced a full-on power outage for days. 19 people died from issues related to the extreme heat. Most were over 60. Some had disabilities and lacked access to life-saving oxygen when the city went totally dark. Now, with how the severity of the storms and the widespread power outages, you have to really think ahead. Now, okay, true resilience here would look like the companies responsible for the city's infrastructure actually investing in a way that would make it less prone to failure. But Entergy, the electric utility in New Orleans, has faced long-time criticism for neglecting the grid and for caring less about reliability for customers and more about returns for its shareholders. So if you can't rely on the electric company to keep you safe, people have to take care of themselves. Enter the Resilience Corps, the folks knocking on doors in the heat. It's focused on making sure people are prepared for the kinds of infrastructure collapse we know will happen again, and knitting together a better social safety net to catch the most vulnerable among us. This program started back in 2020, when two friends who'd spent years in the labor movement together got on the phone, just as COVID began to spread. We're going to leave Tanya and meet Latanja Sylvester. I know their names are similar. Latanja had been looking forward to taking a nice, relaxing stretch of time off in 2020. She just spent seven years as the president of a local union chapter for service industry workers, and she was ready for a break and a vacation. But then the pandemic took hold, and she got a call from her old friend Socket Sony. Socket called me. He's like, well, first he said, are you okay? Right. Um, But I see what's happening um, in New Orleans. You know, at that time, you know, New Orleans was the epicenter of COVID post uh, Mardi Gras. Latanja and Socket knew each other from the labor organizing world in New Orleans. He had recently moved away to Washington, D.C. But watching those early days of the pandemic play out, it reminded him of a different kind of catastrophe, one he'd lived through with Latanja the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. People like Latanja and I got to see firsthand how America rebuilds and recovers after disaster. And the way America recovers, it's uneven and unequal. There are huge divides between who gets to bounce back and who doesn't. And those divides, they almost always fall along lines of race and class. Katrina is the poster child for that kind of inequitable recovery. Just look at who died and who was stranded in the city during the flood and who couldn't rebuild or come home after. Black people, poor people. Latanja and Socket were already starting to see that the burden of COVID was falling hardest on black and brown New Orleanians, and they wanted to do something to reverse it. One of the key things that was important to the two of us is that to ensure that the recovery didn't look like the recovery post-Hurricane Katrina. So Latanja and Socket started talking about this idea. What if they could create a kind of boots-on-the-ground community response team? Maybe if there had been something like that during Katrina, it could have helped people before things got so dire. And now with the pandemic, this new group could employ people who know their neighborhoods well already to do things like give out information about testing sites or deliver groceries. And it could partner with cities to fill in the gaps that local governments miss. It would focus on the people with the greatest needs, helping them bounce back just as quickly as people with more resources. Socket imagined this group acting like a city's white blood cells. I think of the resilience core as the white blood cells of the city. And they gather wherever people have needs 
uh, and they help people heal from whatever crisis they're going through. And it wouldn't stop with COVID. This same group of workers, they could use the same skills like door knocking or putting on resource drives to help cities soften the blow of other kinds of emergencies like hurricanes or wildfires. The kind of disasters we're going to see more and more of with climate change. So in an age of disasters, you need resilience cores to be as permanent a part of a city's infrastructure as firefighters are. They thought New Orleans would be a natural place to pilot this idea, given just how chronic disasters of so many kinds are here and how deeply entrenched poverty and inequality are, too. Latanja approached the mayor's office, which was excited to work with her and Socket to develop this thing. The city government pitched in some money and so did some big foundations. And altogether, they launched the first ever resilience corps in the country here in the fall of 2020. And a key part of the model for Latanja and Socket, these two labor organizers, good jobs. You can't have resilience without a resilience workforce. You can't have a recovery without the workforce. Socket had already been testing this idea on a national scale. He's the founder of a national nonprofit called Resilience Force, like workforce. It's the umbrella organization for the core. The force got its start back in 2017, helping the migrant workers who travel the country rebuilding after hurricanes and wildfires, who are often severely exploited and underpaid. But Latanja and Socket's new idea, the Resilience Corps, it's sort of the flip side of that. Instead of a traveling construction workforce, they recruit workers embedded in their communities to make decent pay doing things like giving out emergency prep information and checking on their neighbors. Fast forward to knocking on doors in Gentilly to get people preparing for hurricanes. I'm back with supervisor Tanya Freeman-Brown. She tells me about her old job pre-COVID. She'd had her own business as a massage therapist. And after the pandemic, I lost all my clients. The Resilience Corps offered a new job at the right time. A lot of the other core workers I talked to had also lost their jobs at the start of the pandemic. There were bartenders, actors, dollar store workers. For Tanya, finding the Resilience Corps was a way to bounce back from that moment of precarity. So this became an opportunity for me to pivot and to get back into the workforce and not really miss a beat. That says a lot about my ability to be resilient. The Resilience Corps workers start out making upwards of $16 an hour with pathways to make more. And they get training that helps them apply to better-paying jobs in public health and emergency management. Some stick around longer, like Tanya, who's risen through the ranks here. The fact that these workers are making decent wages is good for the city, too. City employees told me that if work like this got done in the past, it was by volunteers, who generally get less training and aren't as reliable. And this model, it paid off when Hurricane Ida hit in 2021 just about a year after the Corps got started. It was their first big test. Ida barreled down on New Orleans 16 years to the day after Hurricane Katrina. In the intervening years, the city government had developed plans to help people evacuate ahead of a big storm to avoid what happened after Katrina when thousands of people were stranded in town with no way to leave. But Ida, it was a monster of a storm. It gained force so quickly that city officials said they simply did not have time to run their new evacuation plans. The system failed again. Which meant people who didn't have another option, who couldn't afford to evacuate, were stuck with the power out and the temperature rising outside. But the Resilience Corps was ready. From all their work canvassing neighborhoods for COVID aid, they knew where to focus their attention. After Hurricane Ida, we were on the ground doing wellness checks, delivering food, delivering ice to the most vulnerable communities in, in this city. Latanja said the Corps gave out thousands of meals, sometimes to people who'd barely eaten in days. They helped the city staff makeshift cooling centers where people could come get a respite from the unbearable heat. It was at one of those cooling centers that some of the Corps members met this woman in her 80s. She trekked over from her house on her walker, 
She lived just a few blocks away, but it took her three hours to get there. The horrifying part for her was that police officers drove by. She tried to flag them down. No one would help her. She was one of so many people left to fend for themselves. And the Resilience Corps, they did what they could in the moment to help her and others like her. But they also realized they had to get in front of this problem before it could play out again the next time a storm comes. You know, stories like that, we want to make certain that doesn't happen again this next, you know, this hurricane season, which is why we're doing the disaster preparedness. But we're also going into those homes, checking in on our elderly to make certain that they are safe and they have they have an evacuation plan. And if need be, putting them on the, the list of, if there's an evacuation that someone knows to go pick this person up. That's why the Corps was mobilizing at the start of hurricane season last June on our hot summer canvassing day. The sun was bearing down on one of those treeless streets, and it felt like the asphalt was melting under us. It was about time to wrap up. Ooh, I'm sweating now. Taj Rudolph is one of the youngest Resilience Corps workers. He's 21, and his life has been punctuated by disasters. He grew up in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, He was just four years old when the city flooded in 2005. He doesn't remember a lot about that time, but he always heard that the city was left without outside help, that the federal government left people hanging. He sees the work of the Resilience Corps as a way of assisting people from the inside. He joined straight out of community college during the middle of the pandemic. Just a couple weeks later, Hurricane Ida pummeled the city. Despite all that, or maybe because of it, he likes this word, resilience. It just means the the ability to fight and stand against adversity in hard times. Like that never ending fighting spirit. That's like, this is resilient. How can we manage ourselves in hard times? Even though it's right there in the name, I was sort of surprised to hear how much the workers from the Resilience Corps stand behind this word. Before I met them, I was a lot more like the people who left us voicemails at the start of the episode. I felt like the word was a cop-out, and because of that, almost like an insult. But the Resilience Corps, it's walking the walk. In these small, everyday ways, it's helping people bounce back from the shocks of climate change. But Taj still worries about the future of New Orleans. That no matter how hard people try to help each other, many will still leave. Because I feel like a lot of people was hanging on New Orleans, like, by three. I feel like one more bad hurricane really messed up the culture. Because a lot of people say they didn't want to leave. I feel like a hurricane to do it. And a lot of people have already left, whether they chose to or were forced to. The city has never regained its pre-Katrina population. Most of the people who left were Black. Many never got the aid they needed to come back home. And Taj worries that more storms could mean more people leaving. Sometimes I worry about that too. Like if people don't get the insurance payout or the FEMA check they need to rebuild. Or if they decide to follow family or a better job somewhere else. Or if the constant fear and uncertainty over this place's future in the face of climate change pushes them away for good. And if that happens, Taj doesn't know what will become of the city he loves. And if we leaving, what's New Orleans going to be like? I, I, I can't even see how it will be if everybody mostly moved. Like, how, how will New Orleans be? Like, the unique ways, because everybody, older generation want to get old. Like, they had, used to have more second lines, more events going on. Like, everybody was more together. And people being together, that's what makes this city's one-of-a-kind culture happen. The second lines, the Mardi Gras parades, the way we celebrate life here, even when it can feel like things are collapsing around us. Or maybe because things are collapsing around us. Which reminded me of one other way that Rob Verchick, our octopus in the parking garage author, defines this word resilience. It's the capacity of a community to manage and recover from the impacts of climate change in a way that preserves its central character, the parts of its history and its culture that nourish the soul.
Thanks for listening to Sea Change. This episode was reported and fact-checked by Carly Berlin, a reporter with WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. Editing help was provided by Carlisle Calhoun, Rosemary Westwood, Casey Sichowin, Eve Abrams, and me, Hallie Parker, your co-host. Casey Sichowin also handled promotion. Our sound designer is Maddie Zampanti. Sea Change is a WWNO and WRKF production. We're part of the NPR Podcast Network and distributed by PRX. Check out our website, wwno.org slash podcast slash C dash change. Sea Change is made possible with major support from the Gulf Research Program of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. WWNO's Coastal Desk is supported by the Walton Family Foundation, the Moreau Foundation, and the Greater New Orleans Foundation. See you all in two weeks. Be well and take care. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.